or fall or fantasy. Fall or fantasy. Um, I don't know about you, but I came to an age in my life when I discovered the real stories of nursery rhymes. So maybe you haven't hit that time yet. Maybe you've just heard the nursery rhymes and you're kind of just familiar with the tune and the words. And I, I, I hope this is not going to hurt too much. But I discovered, and you can, it's worth a Google, uh, I discovered that um, a while ago, the nursery rhymes that sound so innocent and cute to us, sound like little kind of fantastic or fantasy rhymes and stories, have grim realities behind them. So, for example, ring a ring a rosy, a pocket full of posies. Well, that's nice, isn't it? It's nice to have a pocket of flowers, a tissue, a tissue. We all fall down. What a lovely... Oh, look at the kids' attention up the back there because they're we're all in... They're like, oh, we know that nursery rhyme. Well, just, just quietly, right? It's actually about the Black Death. That nursery rhyme was written, uh, you know, kind of told. When you think about it, it makes sense. A ring, a ring of roses, a pocket full of posies, often to keep, keep the sickness away. A tissue, a tissue... We all fall down. It's a beautiful nursery rhyme, but it's actually about a really terrible part of human history. There's another one. Um, look, you know, it's widely known around here. I like sheep. Bar, uh, bar, black sheep. Have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. Apparently, it's about the slave trade. Don't get me started on Mary Had a Little Lamb. <laughs> Mary Had a Little Lamb, inspired by an actual incident where a lamb went to school with Mary one day. Sounds, though, like a fanciful nursery rhyme. These stories sound to us like fantasy, don't they? It's interesting when you realise what's true. I think a lot of people approach Genesis 3 in the same way. A lot of people approach Genesis 1, 2 and 3 and perhaps up to chapter 11 in the same way. We, we treat it as a nursery rhyme or a fantasy or poetic or something of kind of human, perhaps myth and legend. We treat it like we're watching or, you know, depending if you like to read or watch, Lord of the Rings. When Galadriel says, myth turned to legend and, you know, we treat it like that. Fall or fantasy... The way you understand Genesis 3 will be the way you understand the world. But the way you understand the world will actually be either a nursery rhyme or reality held into what really is wrong with the world, depending how you look at Genesis 3. Question, do you think there's something wrong in the world? Or do you think... Something's just not quite right, but if we just had better education or if we just had better something we'd finally solve it and then we'd be all good. Do you think the world is fallen from what it could be, what it should be? Is that the reality we live in? Like an old story, it's made into a movie to entertain us. We could treat Genesis 3 like it's an entertaining story. But it's more than an entertaining story, it's human history. And I think we only understand the world around us and myself, my heart and your heart, we only understand it if we see this in the way it's written as human history. 
Now, friends, if you are new to this series, we're in a series in Genesis leading up to Christmas, intentionally so. It's for our church, it's for our community, and we'll see when we land at the end of this series, we're going to keep preaching through Genesis over the next few years, but as we come to Genesis 12, the song we sang, See the Man, comes true in part in Abram, who becomes Abraham, but really through Abram, Genesis 12, then comes Christmas. Then comes the man born into the world. But, but that, none of that actually makes sense. And I'll put it to you, none of the world and the world we live in makes sense unless we see that Genesis 3 makes sense of it. Genesis 3 makes sense. It's not a story, legend or myth. In fact, we saw in the last couple of weeks, Genesis 1 and 2, some even Christian scholars will say, oh, it's poetic literature. It's not poetic. I mean, to be a Christian scholar, to be a Hebrew scholar and to read Genesis 1, 2, 3, it, it doesn't have anything that's poetry in it. It's prose. It's completely prose. And as you read it, it's completely and fully making sense of what life is like for us this side of the garden. And it starts where we see a world around us, if we're honest, I look at the news, if we're honest, we see a world around us and a world in me that is often wrong, where lies become the way we trade information, we see corruption and broken relationships, but it all starts with one lie, one big fat lie. And here's the sad thing, friends, we all tend to believe it. Come with me in Genesis 3, it's really helpful if you've got a Bible in front of you. Genesis 3 verse 1, we pick it up there and we see this lie. Verse 1, now, now remember this is, this is, this is a, a, a movement word, a connecting word, we're in Genesis 2, um, Martin Luther, the reformer, believed that Genesis 3 happens on the Sabbath. So it's six days of creation's happened. Here's a Sabbath. We're meant to be in rest, but the rest is broken by something. Because into this restful period, this restful day, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Notice this, the serpent is a creature. It's not another god. It's not like another Babylonian myth or epic. This is not another God versus God. This is just a creature. It's just a creature. Here comes this serpent. It's a snake. It's, well, seems ordinary. But this serpent is different because this serpent is crafty, more crafty than any other. This is the craftiest of creatures. And the Bible will later say this serpent is Satan, the devil, the father of lies. In Revelation 12, we read this, Revelation 12 verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Be in no doubt, Revelation 12 verse 9 gives all the labels to him. He's a serpent, he's a deceiver, he's the devil, he's Satan. That's who this is. And this original trickster picks on the woman. He finds his target. I'm going for her. And as he goes and slithers towards her, even though Adam is there with her, as we'll see in a moment, 
he goes for her and he speaks to her. Now this, this should make us just stop for a moment. There should be alarm bells sounding for us after Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, apart from the fact that here we have a talking snake, that should be kind of signalling there's something not quite right here, right? Uh, You know, image bearers, we have that kind of capability, communication with God, with one another. But here we have a, a snake that is able to use human words and accommodate into that what's going on. A talking snake. Now, if the devil, we read in the Bible, can clothe himself like an angel of light, he's probably able to make himself look like a snake. And here he is. And so we know immediately things are not as they should be in the garden at this point. Something's not right. And we listen in on a conversation where the woman doesn't take advice from her husband. And moreover, doesn't take advice from God, but she listens to a lower creature. Even stranger... This serpent distinctly and noticeably doesn't use God's covenant name. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's covenant name is used. Now, there's, there's scholarly articles we can go to. You know, people talk about Yahweh uh, and the way we you know, use Adonai. And if you're not sure what I just, just said just then, don't worry about it. If you are interested, Google it later. But the Bible we have uses Lord God, so uppercase Lord God, to show that this is God's His name, his particular name, his covenant name that he reveals later to Moses and others. Satan doesn't. Satan is not in a covenant relationship with God in this way. He doesn't, he just uses God's name. Oh, you know, God, that that, that God you you know? Well, let me belittle him. Let me talk about him. And we see in this moment, there's a question. There's nothing wrong with questions, is there? So we, we as a church, um, sometimes, we haven't done it for a very long time, we have a question time, we can ask questions, we answer on our blog, all that sort of stuff. Nothing wrong with questions, but it's not the question is the issue. It's not there's a, the question's a problem, it's a loaded question. It's a, here we go. It's a loaded question. Did God actually say? Loaded question. It's not just a question, it's questioning God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of... And I want you to just just listen to the language. It's really important. Think Genesis 2 in your head, in your mind. We saw that last week. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? Question. Answer. No. That's not what God said. It's an age-old question, isn't it? Remember, what, what did God say? You can eat of any tree in the garden. Satan says, did God say you can't eat of any tree? That's not what God... God said, you can have of any tree in this whole garden. Every tree that is pleasing to the eye and to the mouth. You, you can have it. I give the whole thing to you. Abundance. Blessing. You can have any tree. Just one. You can't, but everything else. That's what God said. But notice how Satan gets us to question. Satan is the ultimate gaslighter. Oh, yeah, God didn't, maybe he didn't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You see what he's doing? Satan is doing what we see happen today. It's what we do, actually. 
Did God actually say that? We come to God's word and we say, did God dare say that? How could God say that? How could God write that? How could that be in the Bible? Did God mean that? I mean, you you interpret it this way, I interpret it that way. These are all questions of authority. Secretly in our hearts, here's what we're asking. Does God have the authority to say that? Now, I think Genesis 1.1 tells us the answer to that. But basically, the serpent is asking this. Can you trust God's word? Can you trust him? We have come to believe in our part of the world that authority resides in personal choice. Or, if it suits my personal choice. So we change legislation in our state, suits my personal choice, that's the authority now. We just decided it. Whoever we is. But authority rests in God alone. His word given in scripture alone. See, we tend to think in in terms of God's commands, God's laws, it's so restrictive. God doesn't want me to have fun. God doesn't want me to have joy. But when you look at God's laws, they're good. His commands are good. They're for our good. They're for our joy. Because God says, if you do this, it will go bad for you. How bad? You're going to die. If you have the Bible's open in front of you, you can see the answer to the serpent's question. Now, smuggled into the serpent's seemingly innocent question, that's how he works it, there's a truth twisted, which is a lie. God did actually seek and eat of all the trees but one, and, and last week we saw that, of course. Last week we saw in Genesis 2, God creates a garden paradise, which is really, by the way, a temple. Because in this temple, in this garden temple, God dwells with his people. He meets them there. We see in this temple, it's just like the tabernacle and temple that's built later. It's the same structure, right? Because the world is the outer courtyard. Eden is the inner courtyard. But in Eden is the garden, which is the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. It's this beautiful place. And Eden is on a mountain. Where is the temple of the future? It's on a mountain. This is God's holy place. His law is for our good to live in his holy place. And in that garden temple, it contains every tree. And there in the middle is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The garden is a temple of life. Friends, you've got to see this. God wants for our good, for our life, for our blessing, for abundance. That, that, that Eden was meant to be a place, the garden meant to be a place, there's a river flowing through it that flows, that waters all the regions of the, the known world. Ezekiel 28 tells it's on a mountain, so that's where rivers flow from, of course, from mountains. And, and it's meant to be a blessing for the whole world. When the tabernacle and the temple is built, the entrance is on the east. In a time and place where if you build a temple in that ancient time, you, you put your entrance on the north, this one's on the east. This is a place where God is meant to be, where we are meant to be. So that when the serpent comes along into the place that's for us and God, and he comes to the woman, what's he doing? He wants to get between us and God. So he comes to the woman and he's doing what we see happen today. He goes trolling. 
He trolls the woman. He words things so that the woman is drawn in. And the serpent doesn't quote God correctly. He misquotes on purpose. Then verse 2, the woman answers. And notice her answer. Remember, she's been gaslit a little. So she's now disorientated, confused. She's not quite sure. So look at her answer. She says, you read with verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she's kind of, you know, kind of on the back foot, but she's correcting him, right? We, We may eat of the trees in the garden, but God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Getting it right so far. And neither shall you touch it lest you die. You see what's happening? That's not quite what God said. God didn't say don't touch it. You know, whether she's being a Pharisee and kind of putting a rule around the other rule just so you don't go near it, but she's, you can see she's disorientated. She's, she's been kind of confused by the serpent. The serpent is deceiving her and, and she's not quite getting things right, but she's trying. She's like, yeah, what, what, was, what was I told? What was I told? Because it's important to remember, how was she told? By Adam. It's not her job. She was not around when the command was given about the tree. It was Adam's job. Adam was supposed to get... Hang on a minute, Eve. Something's not right here. That snake is talking to start with. It's kind of throwing me a little bit. Maybe that's what's going on. But it was his job to get between her and the serpent and say, that's not what God said. God didn't say that. Well, verse 4, the serpent cuts to what he's chasing. And the key question he wants to put before the woman is this. You won't surely die. God knows when you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want what's good for you. He doesn't want you to have any power. You know the great irony of this lie is this? You'll be like God. He doesn't want that. What's the irony of that? They're image bearers. They're already like God. This is the lie that we believe today, friends. The lie is this. We won't die. We will live forever. Death, friends, is though not simply just necrosis. So that's a a term, death of cells. Death is not just necrosis in our world, the ceasing of life, because the soul continues to exist. There is a theological understanding of the immortality of the soul. You can kill the body, but not the soul. The soul will continue to exist. You will continue to exist. Death is not the end, friends, and then you just don't exist into nothingness. When the Bible speaks about everlasting life or everlasting death... It speaks it in these terms. Everlasting life, blessing and abundance. Everlasting death is everlasting shame and contempt. The difference is, of course, a quality of life forever. There is one who gets to be with the giver of life, imperishable, enjoyable, the other, hell of sin and death and condemnation. Now, doing it your own way, rather than God's way, the lie is, that won't hurt you. And that is a lie. And God knows, 
God knows that if we go down that path, which we do, it leads to death. Satan is so subtle. He's twisted truths into lies. They pose as truth. They're imposters. Fabrications of truth, ultimately bad for you. He deceives. And this lie, secondly, leads to the switch. Now, the title of the sermon, it's, it's me at my height of cleverness, which is about this high, right? It's not very high. So you, if you look at the title of the sermon, you're probably thinking, that sounds like a book, The Lie, The Switch and The Wardrobe, right? That's the point, right? Because here we see the lie, the switch, and then the wardrobe malfunction in a moment. But here's the switch, Verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good, delightful and desired. She is now not content anymore in her heart. Before, she was completely content with all of God's blessings and abundance, all that he gives. And now, for the first time in her life, she's not content. Discontentedness rises. Yeah, God doesn't want what's good for me. Yeah, I don't believe God's word anymore. How dare God say that? Discontent rises, she reaches out, she eats. Then she gives to her husband, who's with her. Adam is not somewhere else. Adam is not like, I didn't know what was going on. I was out hoeing the other part of the garden, they come along and the whole thing's a mess. He was with her. Fellas, we let the sign down. We failed at this. He's with her. Notice this, the woman eats, what happens? Well, yeah, that's right, she'll give it to Adam. But just before she gives it to Adam, the woman eats, what happens? Nothing. Because the command, the covenant, is not given to her. Gives to Adam, he eats, everything happens. Everything goes sideways and south. And from that moment on, The experience of good and evil is right there with them in their hearts. The man and the woman in the garden end up obeying one of the creatures rather than the creator, Romans 1 style. And this switch we see is Adam's fault. It's easy to think, isn't it? It's easy to blame the woman. But you look at the way the New Testament speaks about this. Go For for example, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Where does the Apostle Paul place the blame? It's Adam. Because who is given the command? Adam. Who's in the covenant of works? Adam. He is the representative head for all. He's the representative head for the woman. But look what Adam does. What does Adam do? Who does he blame? He blames his wife. He blames her. Hospital pass, woman, all the blame. Because you see what happens next? Where he was supposed to lead his wife, where he let the serpent lead his wife, where he did nothing, he's supposed to be a prophet. He was given God's word. His silence is deafening. And men, if we don't pick up God's word and make that the centerpiece of our life, the silence is deafening. And do note, 
Do note, as Adam's given God's word and he's supposed to be a prophet, he fails not only to be a prophet, he fails to protect the woman. In a sense, he's supposed to be a priest as well and a king. And a priest is supposed to cleanse the garden from unclean creatures like serpents. He fails at every point. And sin ruins everything. The switch is sin. Instead of him coming in and saying, hey, woman, this is not good for us. This this is going to go bad for us. We are going to surely die. Instead of that, he, he and his responsibility, he listens and lives for the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1 style. Romans 1 verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals and creeping things. Sin sees us worship the creature rather than the creator and sin changes us internally, inside out. It changed them. Look at verse 7. What happens straight away? They realise something. We're naked. Now, notice this. Before, they're married, they're naked, unashamed. They have nothing to hide from each other. But now... Humans feel, when do we feel most vulnerable, friends? When we're naked. When are we most vulnerable in front of someone else? When we're naked in front of someone else. They're now naked and they feel something they didn't feel before, shame. Sin sees us feel the weight of shame. There's a whole world out there today enjoying the beautiful blessing of God's great Son. We should enjoy it this afternoon. Go forth and give thanks. But they're enjoying it with not a thought to God. But secretly, all of us have some shame. We're not sure why or who with, but we have a shame. We we have a shame when it comes to one another. We don't want everyone to know about our life. And certainly we, we believe, perhaps secretly, if there is a God and I should get to know him, there's a shame with him. We feel this shame. We're vulnerable now because of sin. Which leads to the wardrobe, verse 8. Of course, it's much bigger than a wardrobe malfunction. That's a symptom of the sin. But they now know good and evil, not just as a head knowledge, by experience. Like it's, it's known in their life, in their heart, and they have a sense of guilt, which means they now don't just flee from God, they flee from each other. Notice this. They hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and contrast with chapter 2 when God's in the garden and they're having this covenant relationship with him and it's beautiful, now they hide. It's every man and woman for themselves. There's no right relationship with God now due to sin. Real guilt, real shame means we're separated from him so we flee from God and we flee from one another. And this fleeing, even God comes to us And we flee from him. Notice this. Who calls out to who? It's not Adam going, I'm over here, God. I didn't know what to do. Adam's silent. Again, he's silent. It's God that calls out to the man. Where are you? I want you to notice, maybe your Bible's there. We'll have a little footnote over the you. That you is singular. He's calling Adam. 
The one he gave his word to, the one he gave his covenant to. He's not calling for, there's plural often in this passage, but at this point it's singular. He's asking, Adam, where are you, Adam? God calls out for Adam and approaches him. And as he does, the blame game starts. Who told you you were naked? Adam straight away, her fault. Her fault. Adam blames the woman. More than that, he actually blames God. It's your fault because you put her with me. That was your idea. It's funny how we keep doing that today, don't we? That's what sin makes us do. That's what I do in my sin. We blame anyone else. It's her fault. Oh, it was Amy's fault. Our kids' fault. They made me angry. Or it's um, it's it's my friend's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my brother's fault. My sister's fault. Really, it's God's fault. He made this whole situation happen. It's his fault. Sin ruins everything. Sin ruins relationships. Marriage can be beautiful. Genesis 2, marriage is just beautiful. But now, what does marriage need now? Not more blame, this side of the fall. Marriage now needs grace, forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation... Because marriages are broken by sin. Relationships are broken by sin. Look at this lie, the switch, and look at the result, what it does to us. This rebellion, this running away leads to our ruin. Verse 14, the Lord God, Yahweh, speaks and gives judgment on the sinful situation. He judges the serpent to the serpent of all the livestock and all the beasts of the field, which is a repeated phrase, by the way, in Genesis, of all the livestock and beasts of the field, serpent, you are cursed. Serpent, you think you've won. You think you've broken the whole thing and now you're having a sneaky little snigger there. You think you've won. You're now going to bite the dust. And verse 15, this curse, we see therefore an ongoing hostility between the serpent and the woman and her offspring. Verse 16, then the Lord God speaks to the woman. She will now have pain in childbearing. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean pain in labour. I've seen it three times, up close and personal. But you don't have to have seen labour to see pain in childbearing for women. Because pain in childbearing is not just the point of labour. There is pain in raising children. There is pain even for an adult seeing their adult grown-up children perhaps not love the Lord. There is pain in seeing your children make decisions that you would not want them to make, that it's not good for them. Because of sin and sin ruins relationships and sin ruins everything, sometimes there's so much pain that children don't talk to their parents or parents to their children. There is pain now in childbearing because of sin. Sin ruins everything. Sin is not a play toy to turn into a poster to advertise Magnum ice creams. 
Sin is awful, it's evil, it's disgusting and it ruins us and it causes us shame and guilt and ruins everything. And it gets into everything and affects everything and affects me and affects you. Sin is awful and now there's pain in the world. And we see married relationships, there's now pain. We read this this morning in our translations here. Um, Your desire will be contrary to your husband or against your husband. In the old NIV, it used to be for your husband. I think we got confused. We thought that meant, ah, because of sin in the world, now uh, wives are going to find their husbands much more attractive, you know, more desirable. That's not what the text is saying. And by the way, if you want to check it out, the same word that's used for desire here is the same word that's used in Genesis 4 when desire comes for Cain, where sin comes for Cain. Crouching at his door, it's the same. It's a desire for power. Marriages are meant to be beautiful, complementing each other, caring for each other. What do marriages now easily become? A power play. Marriages have pain, but then the Lord God speaks to Adam, verse seventeen. Because you listened to the voice of your wife. Instead of being a prophet and protecting your wife with God's word. Because this has happened and it's your responsibility, you broke the commandment, the ground is now cursed. There is now pain in the workplace. You ever in a workplace where it's all been bliss? Maybe. But there's pain in all our workplaces now. Even in volunteer work, I've been doing some volunteer work this year. Uh, with a particular organisation, I go into that workplace to, to serve and we think, well, that, that organisation will be wonderful because, well, we all mostly are Christians. And that volunteer organisation, I've seen sometimes more pain between the people who are serving than the people we're serving. There's pain now, everywhere. Woman has pain, man has pain, it's a world of pain, wet from the tree, sin ruins everything. And ever since then, verse 19, we return to the dust we came at a rate of generations. And the Lord sees this and his appropriate response is judgment, it's justice, it's curse. We think rebellion is cool and leads to freedom. Rebellion actually leads to enslavement to sin, caught up in its slavery We think we're free, we're in chains. And now the situation looks hopeless outside the garden, doesn't it? But here's verse 20. Because God gives grace outside the garden. In verse 20 we see we're kind of camping outside the garden now. Um, I know some of us love camping, but it's not good camping, it's bad camping. Think no tent Think, you know, all the elements, all the weather. And now think also, I'm frustrated because I'm supposed to be putting tent pegs in and you're not helping. I'm blaming you and you're blaming me. It's that kind of camping. They're camping now with sin in their hearts. But as they do so, we see all these evidences of grace. All these evidences of grace. God is gracious towards them. God cares for them. Because they put fig leaves on in their naked shame. Now, have you ever had a fig leaf dress or shirt go through the wash? 
It doesn't last very long. Fig leaves don't last very long. So God is gracious and blood is shed and he covers them and forgives them and gives them animal skins. That's the first bloodshed. In that sense, a sacrifice is made. These animals are sacrificed in that sense. Their blood is shed so our shame can be covered. God is so gracious. He gives judgment and justice and in his judgment, he's merciful. He still cares for them. He doesn't wipe them out. He doesn't send them to hell on the spot, but he's gracious towards them. And in these evidences of grace, we see a sense of hope that maybe it won't be like this forever. And in this scene of hope, we have this hopeful expectation. Verse 22, that part of that hopeful expectation is this, knowing that they're going to experience good and evil, how terrible it would be, God says, for them to experience good and evil and take from the tree of life and live forever in this mess. So he won't let that happen. He sends them out of the garden as a cherubim with a flaming sword that means we can't go back. And in the midst of this death, judgment and curse, God is gracious. Even ever since that day, we all fell down. A tissue, a tissue. We all fell down. Sin is like a plague that affects us all. Because we're humans and no matter our culture, you can see, it doesn't matter where you're from in the world or what part of history, no matter our culture, our country, our education, our wealth, we are all infected with sin. Evil has entered our world. We can't go back. We can't fix it. We can't put the can of worms back in the can, back in the box. We can't just get the fruit and put it back on the tree with sticky tape and say, I didn't, nothing happened. And where this sin affects us all, we're all fallen. Adam was our covenant head, our representative. We're all in him, born in Adam, born in sin. So helplessly lost at this point, except for the glimmer of hope of the gospel. I want you to notice something in Genesis 3. People who um, notice this in Genesis 3.15, verse 15, call it the Proto-Euangelion. And we all went, yeah, that makes sense. Totally know what you mean. Proto-Gospel. It's the first Gospel. You see, in Genesis, in the midst of judgment and justice, God actually gives a glimmer of the Gospel. And it's in verse 15. Come with me to verse 15. This is in the middle of justice, in the middle of the darkest point. And in verse 15, there is the gospel given. You go, what are you talking about? I can't say the gospel. Read with me slowly. I used to think as a farm boy, this is about, you know, farm boys and snakes or farm girls and snakes, right? Because it says, I'll put enmity between you and your woman. This is between the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And that all makes sense to me as growing up a farm. Of course, I hate snakes. I was mowing someone's lawn yesterday and it was a bit of a jungle. We were serving someone. And, uh, you know, those who were there, let the reader understand. And I thought to myself, because I thought to myself, it's possible on this warm day I will see a snake. And I, you know, maybe today's the day. I didn't. I saw a mouse, which was a relief. Then I thought, maybe there'll be a snake chasing the mouse. 
But see, when I see a snake, I immediately change gears. I, my, my hairs my, uh, prickle up, and all of a sudden, I'm looking for something. Kill, 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 kill. Because that's what we do, right? Unless you love snakes, which my in-laws do, and that's a whole weird thing. But, but we see snakes, we kill. I used to think Genesis 3.15 was just saying what I think is normal in the world. Don't like snakes, we want to kill them. Enmity. But look closely. I will put enmity between you and the woman, serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. And then it's not plural. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's not talking about Russ. That's not talking about any of us. Right there in the middle of judgment and justice is a promise. You think you've won, Satan? Yeah, one day. One day an offspring is going to come. A he, a man is going to come. Born into this line of men and women, born into this line of humanity, he's going to come. And where you think you've won, get this, you'll bruise his heel. There'll be a point you think you've won again. You're going to strike at him, attack his heel. You'll think he's gone and dead. You know what's going to happen? Reality. He's going to crush your head. I wonder when that might happen. Christmas. Isaiah 7.14 The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name... Emmanuel, which means God with us. Galatians 4 verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law. Hebrews 2 verse 14, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took on the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Here is the promise, the first gospel, the glimmer of the gospel. One day a man's going to come through the line of the woman, through the line of Eve. Adam, what's Adam do at this point? She hasn't been called Eve up until now. Adam says, woman, I'm calling you Eve. Why does he do that? You look in the text, why is she called Eve? Because she's the mother of all living. Not just those who live on this earth, I think. The mother of those who truly get to live. Because all those who trust in her offspring the offspring to come, will have eternal life. Adam calls her Eve because that's the hope of the future. This life of death will one day end and there'll be the living. And she, my wife, this woman, will one day be the future offspring's ancient grandmother and the mother of all living, the mother of all those who get eternal life through her offspring. Friends, do you know who that offspring is? We see him in Matthew 4. It was our cross-reference passage. Because in Matthew 4, there comes a man. He seems like an ordinary man to start with, but he comes along and in Matthew 4, Satan sees this man too. And Satan goes straight, slithering towards him. And Satan then asks a question. And a question comes like this. Have you heard this gaslighting before? Satan says to this man, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan repeats his temptation. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. 
Satan plays the same sneaky game. He brings the same questions to this man, and this man's name is Jesus, and we find out he is the Christ. And how does Jesus answer Satan? See, where Adam was silent as the prophet, Jesus is the true prophet. How does he answer? How he's supposed to? With God's word. Jesus, the true prophet, speaks God's word and says, Thus it is written. Adam was commanded to fast from one tree, just one tree, fast from one tree and you'll get to feast on the tree of life. Adam broke his fast through his disobedience. Notice what Jesus does? Jesus, in the wilderness, fasts. He doesn't break his fast, he's perfectly obedient. And he perfectly crushes Satan's head in that moment with God's word. At the end of that moment in the wilderness, after 40 days, and all that period, and all that fasting and hunger, Jesus is perfectly obedient. And notice what happens at the end. Angels come. Do they come with flaming swords? No, they come ministering to him. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we see, do you see? We see Christmas come true in Easter. Because at the end of Matthew's Gospel, here is the Christ, the second Adam. And what happens to him? Thorns and thistles come. And where are they placed? On his head. Thorns and thistles and pain and shame is placed on his head. He is naked and shamed on a tree. And what does Adam do? Fails. And yet what does Jesus do? He is perfectly obedient even to death. And in that moment, he crushes the head of Satan. Oh, Satan thinks he's one. Ah, there's the Christ. There's the Savior. I will strike him. I will bring lies and deception and get into the hearts of men so they'll crucify him. And Satan thinks he's won because his heel has been struck and he dies. But then the Christ rises victorious, crushing Satan's head. Do you see? Satan always thinks he's got the upper hand. Here's the thing to remember, friends. Evil always overreaches. Evil always overreaches. Evil always thinks, ha ha ha, I've won. Evil is so deceiving, it's self-deceived. And here at the cross is the place of victory. A head bruising, a head wound is far more serious than a heel wound. And that's what Jesus is doing as he saves the humans. Friends, if you thought this whole thing has been fantasy, if you've been thinking, ah, oh, Genesis, Genesis 3, total fantasy, I want you now to look at the world you live in. It doesn't make sense without it. And I want you more than that, not just to see it how it makes sense, but to see how God himself has come to rescue you. We now can do what Adam was supposed to do because of Jesus, by his grace. Would you trust God at his word? Would you believe in the word made flesh, broken in flesh, blood shed for you? Would you trust Jesus? Or would you rather not? 
and face death forever. Trust in Jesus, friends. Grace changes everything. Where sin ruins everything, God's grace changes everything. Ever since the garden, God has been calling to you. Where are you? Where are you, teenager? Where are you, young adult? Where are you, middle-aged man, woman? Where are you, person in your sunset years, just wishing you could have a long retirement? Where are you? And ever since the garden, what have we been doing? Hiding in shame. Let's stop hiding from God. Come out, because he gives forgiveness, grace and life forever. He gives Jesus. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray. In Matthew 4, our Father in heaven, we see that Jesus concludes his face off with Satan saying this, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Father, we thank you that Jesus did this perfectly for us where we fail. We often fail. I do. We are fallen. We can see that. It's so clear to us, and what is also so clear to us is now your grace to us. From the beginning, you've been gracious. From Genesis 3, you've given us a glimmer of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're asking now, help us by your Spirit. Do a new work in our hearts that we would believe in Jesus and be in new relationship with you. And we ask this as our life of worship, of living for Jesus now as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.